0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So now open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this afternoon. We're going to read chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was lost to my prophet, whatever was to my prophet, rather, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord your friends. This afternoon we are considering the truth of God's word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 497 of your book of praise. There is a title over this Lord's Day, Our Justification. Question 59, but well, what does it help you now that you believe all this, which is referring to the Apostles' Creed. In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of Christ, each year... In the United States there is a Christian booksellers association convention. This convention brings publishers and retailers together, people who are interested in the selling of Christian books and other items. These men and women who attend this convention are the major league gatekeepers who get to decide what appears on the shelves of mainstream Christian bookstores throughout North America. Well, some years ago, a survey was done at one of these conventions. A number of questions pertaining to the doctrine of justification were posed. The results were surprising. For instance, 71% agreed that justification is the process by which we are made holy by the Holy Spirit. In other words, 71% agreed with the Roman Catholic definition of justification. However, only 54% agreed that salvation is for those who do absolutely nothing to help save themselves, but simply trust in a God who justifies sinful people. Only 54% of the people surveyed at this Christian Booksellers Association convention Agreed with the teaching of Romans 4 verse 5. If we go by these survey results, we shouldn't be surprised that the doctrine of justification is so often either ignored, forgotten, or misunderstood in North America. It's very sad and disappointing. But what about us? Are we any better? Do we have a firm grasp on the biblical doctrine of justification? Do you? Because this doctrine is so crucially important, it's good that we're constantly reminded about it. This is one of the benefits of regularly preaching through the truths of God's Word as we preach through the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 23 explicitly deals with this subject. And to begin with, we need to briefly consider the definition of justification. At its heart, justification is about how a person gets right with God. The picture here is of a courtroom, and God is the judge. Justification basically means that the judge declares that we are right with Him. It's not a process, but a one-time declaration Furthermore, it's it's an acquittal. The judge declares that we are innocent. But yet, it's, it's more than that. Not only are we not guilty, the judge also says that we are positively righteous. We've done everything right in his eyes. And then, surprisingly, after his declaration the judge goes one step further and he adopts us for his children and heirs. This is a sort of courtroom that you'll find nowhere on earth with earthly judges and earthly judicial systems. God's courtroom and the justification that takes place there is entirely unique. And for those who believe in Christ, this is all part of the biblical good news. And so this afternoon I preach to you the biblical gospel of justification. We'll consider three points. First of all, the necessity. Second, the basis. And then finally, the instrument of justification. Read from Philippians 3. and In that chapter, Paul uses some harsh words to describe the enemies of the gospel. People who were threatening the church at Philippi. He does this because he deeply loves the believers and he wants to protect them. You can see this with verse 2. If we translate verse 2 more literally, it says, Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators. Three times he says, Watch out! It's only translated as one watch out in the NIV or a Bible translation, but in the original Greek, it's there three times. And from that, you can see that Paul was not going to take any chances about being misunderstood. are going to take any chances that people might think that he he's not concerned. Because he is. These false teachers were dangerous. And the church at Philippi needed to be on her guard. What was at stake there? What was so dangerous about those false teachers? Verse 19 tells us that whatever it was they were teaching and believing was leading them to destruction. They were denying something so essential and so basic that their salvation was in jeopardy. We can reconstruct this error from what we read in the rest of Philippians 3. What Paul says about circumcision and the law it appears that these false teachers were Jewish. They were likely teaching some form of work salvation, such as we find elsewhere in the New Testament. They would have said that they they believed in Christ, but they would say that Christ is not enough. To be right with God, you not only need Christ, you also need your good works. You need to follow the law of Moses. Moses. However, both Paul and the false teachers saw that it was necessary for man to get right with God. On that, they were agreed. Where they differed was in their evaluation of man and what he can contribute. In Romans 3, Paul said it very clearly, quoting from Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everyone is under sin. In Isaiah 64.6, God teaches that all the acts that we do, that we consider to be righteous, are actually filthy rags in His sight. They count for nothing. And so Paul concludes in Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Man cannot get right with God on his own terms. If man is to get right with God, get into a right relationship, a good, healthy, friendly relationship with God, it has to be on God's terms and in God's way. So while both Paul and the false teachers saw the necessity of justification, only Paul saw the necessity of justification on God's terms and in accordance with God's Word. And furthermore, if man tries to be justified on his own terms, the results will be disastrous. In fact, then there is no justification. It becomes a fiction. A man may think that he's justified, but then he believes a lie. He's self-deceived. Paul came to realize this. He says that if those false teachers were right... And he would have been Exhibit A for how to be justified with God. Because before he became a Christian, before he knew Christ, he had it all. He was the Jew's Jew. But his eyes were opened by God and he realized that it was all a fiction. He had nothing apart from Christ. He stood condemned before the judge. And so do we all if we think ourselves to be right with God in any other way than that which is revealed in the Bible. The Catechism draws us out of Scripture when it says that we know that what our conscience says is true. Our conscience tells us that we have sinned against all of God's commandments. We've never kept any of them. We are still inclined to all evil. What do we have that we could offer the judge That we could persuade him to let us off. That we could persuade him to acquit us of all the charges against us. We have nothing. Left to ourselves, we have no defense. Like Isaiah, we would cry out before God, Woe is me! I am ruined! I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We need the true biblical gospel of justification. And the heart of that good news is its basis. How is it that God can declare that we are not only acquitted, but also that we are positively righteous before Him? Well, the answer rests in Christ alone. Particularly as the Catechism says it, we are right with God because the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ are imputed to us. All of Christ's sufferings for sin. All His perfect obedience His whole life long. All those things are credited to us. It's like the great exchange. Our sins were imputed to Christ, transferred to Him. And Christ's righteousness was transferred to us. The result is that the judge sees that we we are not who we were but that we are new creations. We are in Christ. We are joined to Him. This is the basis for our justification. And that's captured in Holy Scripture in Philippians 3 as well. Being found in Christ, Paul says, means that He's given up on any righteousness of His own. In fact, he says, all that so-called righteousness can go to the dogs. Instead, being found in Christ, Paul will not have a righteousness of his own. But he'll have the righteousness that comes from God. What Paul is saying is that he needs what we call an alien righteousness. Alien righteousness means the righteousness of another. That other is Christ and Him alone. The righteousness of Christ is the only basis for our justification. So Catechism puts it, only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. The same point is made in Romans 3. In verses 21 and 22, Paul speaks about a righteousness from God. What is this righteousness? Well, it is apart from law. In other words, it has absolutely nothing to do with what people do. Instead, this righteousness is found in the one sent by God, in Christ. Verse 24 of Romans 3 says, we are justified freely by His grace, here it comes, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The basis of our justification is God's gracious provision of the righteousness of Christ. We did nothing to deserve it, nothing to merit it. In point of fact, we have done everything to forfeit it. You see, God's grace in Christ is not only unmerited favor, but dismerited favor. Not only unmerited, but dismerited favor. Let me illustrate what I mean with that. Imagine a beggar on the street. Passing, you've never seen this beggar before, and one day you you pass him by. And he asks you for a loony, so that he can buy some lunch. Some others have passed by too, so he's got a, a couple loonies, just needs one more, and he can get something. Man's done nothing to deserve the loony, but you, because you're gracious, you decide to give the loony. That's a sort of unmerited favor. But now imagine a different beggar, a block or so further on. You recognize this one. He's the one who spray-painted your fence last night. He's the one who tore up all the plants in front of your house. That beggar, he's the one who harasses your kids when they're playing outside, when they go to the park. Now this beggar asks you for a loony. And you give it to him despite all that He's done to you and to your family. That's a sort of dismerited favor. God's grace and favor towards us are dismerited favor through and through. Because we are that last beggar. And when we realize that, that only deepens our love for God and our thankfulness towards Him. Because we see how rich And we see how beautiful the Gospel truly is. We see what a wonderful Savior we have. What a God we have that He would send His Son to die for us rebels and ingrates. How great a salvation we have in Christ, loved ones. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by His grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with His blood. He presents our souls to God. Beautiful. To receive all this, only one thing is necessary. Catechism says in question and answer 60, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. And in question and answer 61, I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. In other words, faith and faith alone is the instrument of justification. In Philippians 3, verse 9, Paul says that the righteousness of God comes to him through faith. In other words, faith is the way that God's righteousness is received. Faith is like that the hands that receive this wonderful gift from God. Romans 3.22 says exactly the same. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 4 goes on to speak about Abraham and how Abraham was justified not by works of the law. It would have been impossible because there was no Mosaic law. By his faith. We could mention other places, but the Scriptures are clear enough that justification is by faith alone. The Scriptures are clear. Or are they? I think if I were to leave it at that, somebody might come to me later and say, but Pastor, what about James 2.24? James 2.24 says something different. James 2.24 says that you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. James has been using the same example of Abraham. And now he comes with exactly the opposite conclusion that Paul reached from Abraham. Paul said that Abraham was justified by faith. James says that Abraham was justified by faith and works. Who do we believe? What do we do with this? The answer... Is simply that Paul and James use the same word. But it is a word which can have different meanings. If you look it up in a Greek dictionary, you can see that. And that's what's happening here. Using the same word, but it has different meanings. In Romans, Paul uses the word justify to refer to a legal declaration by God. In James, we find the word justify used to refer to a demonstration of one's faith before people. If you wanted to use another word to describe it, you could say vindication. We know this for a number of reasons. One of them is the fact that Paul and James are dealing with different questions. Paul is concerned with how one can be right with God. That's his driving concern in those first chapters of Romans. James, on the other hand, is concerned with how the reality of faith can be demonstrated. And so really, the passage from James 2.24 has no direct bearing on what we're considering in Lord's Day 23. The biblical fact remains that justification, understood as a legal declaration by God that we are right with Him, is by faith alone. Faith is the only instrument of justification. And so where does that leave us here this afternoon? Well, obviously, it leaves us in a familiar place with the call to believe the Gospel. Looking to Christ for everything you need for salvation is the only way to be right with God. Trusting in Christ and resting in Him alone is the only way that we are right before God and heirs to life everlasting. So loved ones, let me say it clearly. Accept the gift of Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. Accept it with a believing heart. Do it here this afternoon. Do it for the first time. Do it again. But do it. Christ holds out this gift to you. Accept it in faith and make it your own. 2 Corinthians five twenty and 21 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Before we conclude, I think it's important to consider some of the contemporary challenges to believing and holding to this biblical gospel of justification. We began by noting that this doctrine is not well understood and it's not well accepted in broader Christian circles. By calling attention to some of the challenges, the ones that we face, perhaps we can also guard ourselves against losing this good news, both individually and corporately as a church. Now I want to specifically mention two. I know that there are more But there are two challenges that I think really deserve our attention this afternoon. And they are connected. But I'll let you reflect on what the connection might be between these two. The first contemporary challenge to the biblical gospel of justification is narcissism. Perhaps you've heard of the Greek myth of narcissus. Narcissus was a Greek hero. He was famous for being a very good-looking man. In one version of the myth, there there are several, but in one version, he had an identical twin sister with whom he would hunt. They they dressed similarly. They they looked alike. And they did everything together. Inappropriately. There aren't very many appropriate Greek myths. he, he, He fell in love with his sister. And then for some reason, she died. And after her death, Narcissus saw her reflection in a pool of water. And he became obsessed with the image. And it was only after he tried to kiss it that he realized that it was his own image that he'd been obsessed with. Narcissism is named after Narcissus. Narcissism is simply an obsession with self. In many ways, our culture promotes and exalts narcissism. Just to mention one example. I don't know how many of you get the uh, Time magazine. Time magazine's person of the year was you. There was a mirror on the front cover. You are the person of the year. Through the phenomenon of YouTube and other things on and off the internet, the individual self was crowned person of the year. Looking out for number one has taken on new dimensions. And how does our contemporary narcissism challenge the doctrine of justification? Well, A moment ago when we were looking at the basis of justification, we noted that it involves an alien righteousness. It involves the righteousness of another, of Christ. We have to look outside of ourselves to be right with God. Narcissism, on the other hand, directs us to keep looking inside ourselves for everything. And really, that kind of naked narcissism, if we can call it that, is just another variation on the lie told to Adam and Eve. You shall be as God. You don't need Him. You've got it all in you. But it can be more subtle than that. Because narcissism... Also teaches us that there is value in others. We have to look for the value in others so that we can exploit them for our own benefit. With all their selfishness, narcissists can still be and often are very sociable people. Other people are the means that they use to serve themselves. Their obsession with themselves and their interests. For us as believers, this has a danger. We say that it is Christ's righteousness that brings us into a right relationship with God. The imputation of that righteousness. But did you know that we can embrace that in a narcissistic and self-serving way? Think about it. Do we serve God? Do we embrace Christ only because of what we Can get out of him? Out of it? Or do we serve God because we earnestly desire his praise and his glory to be magnified? The great reformer Martin Luther once reflected on this, on this question. He pondered, hypothetically, whether he would still continue to serve and glorify God if he knew that God was going to send him to hell anyway. Sounds shocking. That's something to think about. Narcissism tells us to serve God because of what we can get out of Him. The Bible tells us to serve God because it's the thing we were created for. Because we were created for His glory. A second contemporary challenge to the biblical gospel of justification is the cultural trend of busyness. This is a bit different than narcissism because being busy in itself is not necessarily evil. Narcissism in itself is evil. But having lots of things to do is not in itself a wrong thing, though it could be. Today, everybody is busy. In fact, if you're not busy, the thinking goes, you must be lazy. There must be something wrong with you. Our culture inside and outside the church demands that we have a plate full of things to do and not enough time in which to do them. For many people today, busyness is a badge of honor, a measure of one's status. If you're really busy, you must be really important. Every week, the Vancouver Sun features a story about a prominent business person in the Fraser Valley. And in a sidebar you can read about how many emails this person gets every day and, and other such indicators of their busyness. In our culture, and, and this includes the church, people are defined by what they do and by what they accomplish. This challenges the gospel of justification because that gospel says that there's nothing you can do to earn favor with God. You With all your busyness, you will never make God owe you anything. As a believer, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Or less, for that matter. We have to be careful because when we define ourselves in terms of what we do, and when we find our identity in our accomplishments, we're not far from denying the Gospel. One author It's called a justification by busyness. Mindset works like this. If I work just a bit harder, then I'll be successful. If I work harder, God will will look at me positively and He'll love me more. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel of justification tells us that there is nothing we can do. It's only when we are weak. It's only when we are powerless that we are strong. Now perhaps we don't explicitly connect our busyness to a denial of the gospel. But let's be aware and let's be cautious that this could be our ultimate destination. We have to find our identity and the basis of our relationship with God, not in what we do and in how much we do, but in who Christ is and what He has done for us apart from us. The biblical gospel of justification is counter-cultural in every day and age. It goes against the grain of our fallen human nature. That nature always gravitates towards the exaltation of self. And so it takes not only the divine gift of faith to embrace this doctrine, but also its close cousin, humility. Loved ones, let's pray that God would give us these gifts and continue giving us these gifts so that we, like Paul, would know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. God of grace and compassion, we thank you for the beautiful biblical gospel of justification. It's truly news that is good to our ears and and to our hearts. We praise you and we adore you for it. We thank you for the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ freely given to us so that we can be right with you. God, help us to accept this gift with a believing heart. Help us, each and every one, to receive this righteousness by faith and make it our own. Please work in us with Your Spirit so that our eyes are also open to the challenges before us in our culture. Help us to discern and keep us on the right track set out for us in Your Word. We also pray that You would forgive us for all the times that we have succumbed to the spirit of the age, for our narcissism, for our using busyness as a form of justification. Help us to turn our backs on these things and to serve you with purity according to your holy gospel. We ask that you would please hear us as we pray in the name of the one who is our righteousness, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web